Apostle Paul, who used to be a Christian killer, is writing this letter to a local church in a city called Thessalonica. Everybody say Thessalonica. Is it okay with you if I say Thessa for the remainder of this sermon, just to keep it brief? So he picks up his pen and he writes these words only 16 years after Jesus' resurrection. The amount of time it took you to grow into a driver's license is the amount of time that had passed between Jesus' ascension into heaven and the writing of the words that we'll read today. Most scholars think that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter during his second missionary journey. He writes it from the town of Corinth, which is about 185 miles from Thessa. That's roughly the distance between here and Myrtle Beach. How many of you would say that's a long way to walk? This is letter worthy, right? Hard to make a visit there. So he pens this letter. Paul had been to Thessalonica Paul had preached in Thessalonica, but he was charged with sedition against Caesar. This ended his stay in Thessa prematurely. Obviously, he cares about these dear folks very much. And so in a very pastoral and thoughtful way, Paul sends the correspondence that we're going to read today. And I think it's fair to say that Paul was concerned about these new Christians. Paul had already sent his spiritual son, Timothy, to check on the church. Timothy returned with a report card that was generally good, but it was not exactly A pluses. Some members had passed away. Many of the remaining Christians didn't fully understand that their deceased loved ones who knew Christ were going to be in heaven with Jesus. They didn't get that their loved ones were destined for glory. They thought they were perhaps destined for wrath, though they knew Christ. And so they they needed this assurance to settle their fogginess that they would go to heaven with their loved ones to be with the Lord. And of course, they were vulnerable in other ways. We've talked about those ways. They thought it tragic that the Apostle Paul had yet to return to them. They missed his company very much. They didn't expect that the initial Roman persecution would persist and endure as long as it had. They had, which Pastor Farrell talked about last week, given into sexual misconduct. They were blue. They were despairing. Some wallowed in deep grief. And, and you know, Sal and I dressed alike this morning for... Uh, your entertainment value. But Paul writes to Thessa and says, why are you lookalikes with the world? Why are you pouting like the world? Why are you twinning around with the world? You're not to look like the world, you're to look otherworldly. You're to be set apart. So quit grieving like the world. Stop being all matchy-matchy with the world. Quit pairing up, quit pairing off with the world. When the world frowns, you are to smile. 
When the world dishonors God with their bodies, you're to honor God with your bodies. When the world fears hell, you're supposed to hope in heaven. When the world is dead, you're to have a faith that is alive. So Paul sits down to write, and we're blessed today, nearly 2,000 years later, to have a copy of this letter. And so written with encouragement to the saints, Paul's purpose is to say, you do not grieve like those who have no hope. You don't. You don't grieve like, let's begin with verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. In other words, your relatives that have gone to be with Jesus. So that you do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that God will bring Jesus, bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. With a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with him in the clouds. We will meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, let's encourage one another with these words. Can we just be encouraged by the text this morning? That's awesome. Like, that's a good sermon assignment. That's great. So how are we to live as those who have hope? First, we passionately believe that Jesus will return to receive the redeemed, both the living and the dead. We believe it. We are confident in it. We know it, as my grandpa would say, in our knower. Nobody can take it away from us. Jesus is coming back for the living and the dead. This is Orthodox Christianity. You talk to Catholics, they've got this right. Lutherans, nearly everybody gets it right. This is not new. Christians have believed this for 2,000 years. It's not so much a matter of the knowledge. It's a matter of accepting it and living like it. The Apostles' Creed got this right in 340 A.D. I want to read this to you this morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell, and on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. This is a 1,700-year-old document. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic 
church. That is to say, little C Catholic, not big C Catholic, not the Roman Catholic church, but rather all Christians from all times and all places. It goes on to say the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, and here it comes, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. Jesus already came once to establish the way of salvation by giving up his life for us on the cross. And let us be clear, our faith teaches he will come back a second time to receive all of those who have accepted him as Savior and Lord. He's already saved us, but he's not yet saved us. Theologians call this the already, not yet. He's already provided a home for us in heaven, but we're not yet in heaven. We live in the tension between the already and the not yet. John the Beloved recorded Jesus himself saying this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Maybe somebody just needs to hear those words of Jesus this morning. Just that alone. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going back there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back, I will come back, and I will take you with me there, that you also may be where I am. You know the way, you know the way to the place where I am going. How else do we live as those who have hope? We know that, secondly, we are to passionately believe that those who have died will be resurrected. The Nicene Council got this right on the 19th of June in 325 AD. I'll read the only, or rather, only the second half to you. This is what it says. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world that is to come. Amen. The resurrection of the dead. The New Testament paints this picture more like the night of the living dead. The earth is going to break open. Tombstones will be overturned. And the souls of those who have received Jesus as Lord will break through the ground to be with Jesus. Paul wrote to the church of Philippi, verse 20 of Philippians 1, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Church, when Jesus returns, he will raise the body of the deceased including the Apostle Paul. 
and will unite body and soul into one being to share his glory forever. Isn't that encouraging? That's awesome. That's awesome. The doctrine of heaven then, of resurrection, it assures us that death is not the end. Will you say that with me? Death is not the end. Number three. We passionately believe that Christians who are alive at Jesus' return will be raptured. Will be raptured. How many of you kind of hope you come out of the ground? How many of you hope you're raptured? Wouldn't that be cool? What does that word mean? That's kind of an old word. That's old school. At Jesus' return, the believers who are alive will be transfigured. They will receive a heavenly body. The sky will part. The trumpet will sound. And those believers will meet Jesus in the air. Here's what the word rapture means. It means to fly. Now, when I was a little boy, there was a movie that I absolutely loved. I was about five or six years old. 1986, this movie came out. Anybody remember a movie by the title, The Boy Who Could Fly? It was popular at the time. (laughs) Obviously not popular now. (laughs) The Boy Who Could Fly. Ever since I saw that movie, I wanted to fly. I've wanted to fly all my life. I used to dream of jumping on the clouds. Of, of, of using them when I get to heaven as some sort of trampoline with the apostles, with the prophets, with the poets, with those who've gone before us, with my grandparents and great aunts and great uncles. Every child who is a fan of Superman wants to fly. Green Lantern, Storm, Silver Surfer, Martian Manhunter, Rogue, Shazam, Iron Man, Captain Marvel. A big reason that these superheroes attract moviegoers is that the moviegoers find appealing the idea of what? Of flying. And those of us who are still alive when Jesus comes back a second time, We're going to get to fly. How incredible, how mind-blowing will that be? Number four, as believers, we'll be present with Jesus forever. As the redeemed ones, we will experience the blessing of heaven and the wonder of being with Jesus. Heaven will be a place of rejoicing, reunion, and reward. And we all have seen those pictures We've seen the table full of the most lavish of meats and wines. We understand that the music isn't going to be gloomy. It's going to be phenomenal. The best musicians we've ever heard. Better than the best concert hall you've ever paid admission to enter. Heaven is going to be glorious, but I'll tell you what, and this is where I think we err. The streets will be made of gold But that's not the main attraction. The gates will be made of pearls, but that isn't the main attraction. Peter may be scheduled to greet that day, but Peter isn't the main attraction. 
The main attraction is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and who takes away my sin and who takes away the world's sin. You've seen Duke Power. Everybody seen Duke Power? It's impressive. It is. They've got traditional power generation or conventional. Now we've got nuclear power generation. Guess what? In heaven... There is no power generation because the place is lit by Jesus Christ himself. Revelation 21, 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb is its lamp. So how should we live in expectation of Jesus' return? I don't know about you. We've got work to do. I've had so many people ask me, what's your vision, Pastor? What's your vision? The questions are well intended, I know. But as Scott Rainey said to me last night, man, the vision is to populate heaven. This is a simple formula. The methods, the mechanisms, the strategies will change with every generation. We just want to take people to glory with us. That's the goal. The message remains the same, and it's an urgent one. We don't have time, in my opinion, for charts and graphs. We don't have time to get into arguments over pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. I heard a pastor say once, and I agree with him, I'm not part of the planning committee. I'm part of the welcoming committee. I'm going to be ready. I love that. So here's what we do. We live with passion for evangelism. The lost will be separated from Christ for an eternity if we don't reach them. We should make every effort to reach them so they can spend eternity with the same Jesus that we love and adore. Two, we live with expectancy. We can't wait. Jesus spoke of the signs of the time as to his return. We see some of them happening already being fulfilled already. We don't scare everybody to death talking about it, but we're certainly watchmen on the walls. Third, we live with hope. We live with the hope of being united with Christ and reunited with believers who have died. How many of you can't wait to see Mama? How many of you can't wait to see Papa? Mama? Daddy? Your son? Your daughter, the precious life that you miscarried, the precious lives that you miscarried, your sisters, your brothers. Father, as the band begins to lead us in song, I pray that we would understand the hope that is glory. I pray, Lord, that as we begin to sing verses and a chorus, that we would experience what is your hope. Lord, that we would know that you love us, that we would know that you are preparing a home for us, that we would enter in expectantly and have a phenomenal hope. We love you, Lord. We trust you, Jesus. We treasure you, Father, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.
I'm going to come up momentarily and offer a few closing thoughts. But in the meantime, I'd like to invite you to stand. We're going to sing together. I heard a guy say once, sometimes we lie more in the words that we sing than we do the words that we say. Let's trust in Jesus this morning. He's our salvation. He's our hope. Then 
came the morning that sealed the promise. 